This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of July 26th, 2021. This is the week of LeVar Burton as guest host. Much anticipated, mm-hmm. LeVar Burton. The people demanded it. Yes. Um, it's It's been, it's it's been, been a f- little choppy. Yeah. It's been fraught, I would say. Yeah. He is uh, struggling more than most of the guest hosts have. Um, and I will admit, I was a, I was a LeVar Burton advocate um, before this. I was a huge Reading Rainbow fan. Um, all of you who have been listening to my literature nerding uh, will not be surprised to hear. Um, I was also a Star Trek The Next Generation fan. So I, I hopped right on that bandwagon. Um, I think part of what's going on from my perspective is... I thought of him as kind of an educator, entertainer, and like reading Rainbow feels very much of a piece with like my my childhood interest in reading Rainbow feels very much of a piece with my adult interest in Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so LeVar Burton sort of fit into that for me. But he does not have a lot of experience like many of the other guest hosts do with kind of responding on the spot. He's been mostly in scripted entertainment. True. And to me, that seems like a place where he's struggling, that he can't rehearse and be ready to do his, you know, to do his prepared, you know, thing and kind of know what the plan is and what's going to happen. He has to be responding in the moment. And and that seems like he's having a hard time adjusting to that. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, I don't think... I don't think he's necessarily done, like, the worst job that I think will remain the purview of Dr. Oz. But, (laughs) yeah, it's, I know a lot of people were very excited. And a lot of people, before he'd even been on, were saying, let's just give him the job. And I know that there are also people who are claiming there's a conspiracy against him by the Jeopardy staff, who are seem absolutely convinced, despite having no real evidence, that... They're trying to purposely tank him as though as though that's a thing. Yes, there are a lot of things that seems like they should have been fixed in post. Mm-hmm. There do seem like there are a lot of things that should and could have been fixed in post. Yeah, I will agree with that. Um, yeah, I just I mean, I just watched the Friday episode and I will say he's he's doing much better. He did much better on Friday than he did on Monday. Sure. You know, I think that learning curve is rough. I think he he really kind of improved over the course of the week, which for him was one day. Right. Um, right. But the fr- the Friday game, I just watched him say no, yes, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, you could have just you could have taken the no out. Um, yeah. There are there are moments when it seems like the choices are to make the host look good or to make the contestants look good. Okay. Because I think the host struggling can be disorienting or like flustering for like it can it can fluster the contestants right and so i could see i could potentially see leaving some of that in if the contestants are kind of looking confused yeah they're like visibly shaken but the uh, but us the viewing audience doesn't know why right that could be a Um, perfectly valid reason 
Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of like um, the day that that I sat in the studio, I didn't end up recording. Like the, your your uh, when you started taping, Kyle, mm. um, the game with Lauren Stripling Brody, where yep. there were um, a whole bunch of reversals mm. and some like sort of shaky stuff that got edited out in post, um, and that she got very shaken during that game, and understandably so. Sure. And then it looked like a very clean game where she, where she, you know, really just struggled. And I think it was, you know, it would not be as clear to the home viewing audience. Right. Why? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. So I can see where like leaving some of the host having a hard time in could could help if the contestants are visibly sort of shaken and, conf- you know, confused by some of the, you know, choppiness mm. or, you know, whatever. But yeah, I uh, I'm surprised what they didn't fix in post. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I just uh you know, I, I just think with these conspiracy theories, it's like. It's hard to imagine the producers going to the editing room and being like, what you what we want is for you to make him look bad. Right. And then the editors being like, OK, OK, like, I, will, I will do it. I will make him look bad. Right. Like it does, <laughs> and none of us are going to tell the news this story that would be very much of interest. Like ex, like bombshell kind of. stuff. So, yeah, it's like. Yeah, I don't buy that. I think it's, I agree, it's strange. I -hmm. wonder why. But I also accept the reality that I wasn't there. I have Mm -hmm. no idea. And for some reason, there seem to be a bunch of people who seem to think that they know more than I do from their couch rather than mine. Yeah. Um, I have heard some conversation that um, some of the other guest hosts struggled also a lot we don't have access to anyone who could compare across right guest hosts kind of um, Matt, across the right? whole <laughs> but- yeah uh um yeah uh so i think there was some conversation that like one of the much earlier guest hosts struggled some yeah. and that it got fixed in post um and i saw some some credible i thought speculation that like the staff is just tired now yeah. <laughs> you know that and that maybe you know maybe they really uh, put in a huge effort to make early guest hosts look good and stayed late and, you know, mm-hmm. moved mountains in a way that they're just too tired to do now. You know, it's been it's been a long, you know, a long season of guest hosts. Yes. So it's understandable that they would not be putting in the same level of uh, effort in July that maybe they did in, you know, in February or March. Sure. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so there's our our thoughts on it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I still I love Levar Burton. Nothing against him. Oh, oh yes, yes, I love Levar Levar Burton. Absolutely um, no problem. Yeah, but he wasn't the natural that I think a lot of us thought he would be. Um, yeah, and to to me, it comes down to that sort of scripted versus impromptu thing. Sure, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but this is also uh, the fourth game with Matt Amodio. Matt Amodio. Matt Amodio. Oh, so the 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 other big story of the week, I would say probably the bigger story. Uh, so on Monday, July 26th, we have the contestants. Kathleen McHugh, a retired legal assistant originally from Detroit, Michigan. Patrick Pierce, a product specialist from Fountain Valley, California. And Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose three-day cash winnings are 
are $101,400. And uh, we have the Jeopardy round categories. History. TV workplaces. Where the wild things are. Business in the front. Party in the back. And nice mole it with M-U-L in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. And if anybody likes to see like a game dynamics graph where you can see three lines on it this is the game where that happens mm-hmm. um uh because the other four games this week and yeah, i mean spoiler warning but y- y'all watch jeopardy um <laughs> right like the the other two the other two contestants are just like little bitty lines along the bottom as matt is like just a line into the sky um, yeah he did great this game but he just really picked up speed over the course of the week mm-hmm. Uh, another like a big story of this game was Patrick, who had a just a rough go of it, mm, just across yeah. the board. I think he he had trouble getting in on the buzzer, and mm-hmm. felt a lot of pressure to try and just you know get some money because he he answered he he answered a number of incorrect responses that I I don't think were necessary. Um, mm-hmm. but he probably felt that pressure. Like we've talked about a lot, like you get a little bit behind, you get in the red and you want to get out of it. And then you get farther behind and you feel like you need to dig yourself out of a hole. Mm-hmm. And you start answering questions that you don't really know the answer to, but just hoping um, to get lucky. Yep. Yeah. I feel like we saw that happen with Patrick over the course of the game. I also, I, I very much remember um, Maggie speak, the, uh, the now retired contestant, coordinator um, talking about that one of her favorite contestants was a young woman I don't know who specifically who just went further and further into the red and sort of you know seeing somebody just sort of never give up and Mm -hmm. just keep fighting and keep trying um yeah but I just I felt for Patrick oof yeah me too yeah it's tough I don't remember this last week but I it might have been true but uh Matt started at the thousand dollar level coming back this week uh and he pretty much stuck with that throughout the week Mm -hmm. Uh, spoiler alert you know going straight to the thousand dollar level in the jeopardy round and then the sixteen hundred dollar level in the double jeopardy round he he wanted to get those get those first it seemed like Mm -hmm. yeah some of the people who were up against him when they got control would head to the top row to the 200s or 400s um which on the one hand, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on the other hand, with Matt at the podium, like you want to try and get that daily double off the board. Yeah. Because he's been, I mean, his, his wagers aren't huge, but the possibility for to, to move yourself quite a bit forward and taking that chance away from him, I think are... Um, good reasons to to avoid that top row when you get control absolutely daily double number one is in the where the wild things are category at the 800 dollars level and it's the 12th pick and matt finds this one he has 4200 kathleen is at zero patrick is at negative 800 at this point had kathleen gotten in she had gotten in so she must have um she must have lost her gains again yeah she got in at the thousand and then she lost a thousand anyway uh matt gets the clue the north island brown is a variety of this flightless bird and he correctly responds what is a kiwi Uh so at the 
end of the Jeopardy round. Matt has made it up to $13,000. Um, Kathleen is at $1,600. Patrick is back up to negative $200. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories Arabia, Names in Literature, Tough Three-Letter Words, U.S. Government Buildings, Popes, and Oscar Acceptance Speeches. I had awkward clue. Uh, there, were, there were a few of them that were really awkward of like missed answers and stuff like that in that three-letter word category at the $1,600 level. This Latin word, meaning thus, begins Virginia's state motto. Patrick rang in and said, what is lip or ip? Um, and LeVar said no, and Patrick tried to keep going, uh, but he wasn't. Then Matt rang in and said, oh, what is hick? But that's also incorrect. They were looking for sick, mm-hmm. as in Six Semper Tyrannus, which I maybe knew that it was Virginia's state motto. Uh, I definitely know it's what John Wilkes Booth yelled right before he shot Lincoln. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, I know that. Yeah. In the in the Jeopardy round at the in the history category at the six hundred dollar level, we had like a really tricky thing yeah. uh, with Lavar sort of finding his way to like how do you respond to um to the contestants the clue there was overthrown by the u.s this panamanian dictator was convicted in miami of federal drug and racketeering charges in 1992 um and matt rang in first he said um what's uh and then he got the answer noriega in um but the time had it expired and lavar burton just said wrong so then Kathleen rang in and said, who is Somoza? And he ruled her wrong. And then Patrick rang in and said, Manuel Noriega. And that was correct. And the, the thing that went wrong there is that LeVar Burton should have said, oh, sorry, too late. Right. Instead of wrong. So uh, they gave Kathleen her money back on right. that one. Um, because if he had said, that's time or, you know, too late or, you know, sorry, out of time or like whatever, instead of wrong. Mm-hmm. Um that might not have led her to try and come up with a different response. Right. Yeah. Daily double number two is in the Arabia category. It's at the $2,000 level. Patrick finds it. Uh, It's pick number seven in the round. He is at negative 1,000 at that time. And he, uh, Matt is at 12,200. Kathleen is at 3,600. And he wagers 2,000. And he gets a clue. This emirate, a 100-mile-long peninsula on the East Coast, has taken a more independent line than its neighbors in recent years. And Patrick, I think, clued in on emirate and went to uh, what is Abu Dhabi. Yeah. But the correct response is Qatar. Mm-hmm. That's a tough, tough break. Yeah. Yeah. So he drops to negative 3,000. Yes. And Daily Double number three is in the Oscar acceptance speeches... I, I was sort of blown away that they managed to do a whole category about Oscar acceptance speeches and not mention Sally Field, who sure. like was the first name to come to mind when I saw the category title. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, this is the 11th pick. It's at the $800 level. And Kathleen finds this one. So uh, one daily double for each contestant yeah. in this game. She's at 6,400 to Matt's 12,200, and Patrick is at negative 5,000 at this point. Um, 
And she gets the clue. This moonstruck actress said, "Okay, Michael, let's go. Referring to her cousin running for president. Uh, She tried who is Cher. Um, Mm. That is also the only guess that I had. From Uh, Moonstruck. Yeah, me too. I was like, oh, who else was in Moonstruck? Yeah. Uh, The correct answer was Olympia Dukakis. Uh, Michael Dukakis was running for president. Sure. So she also misses that one. She made a good, like a good bet. 3,000 is not a bad bet. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. At the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt is at 17,000. Patrick is in the red at negative 7,400. Which I have heard some people ask, like, was that a record for... It actually is. Yes. Andy on the Jeopardy fan says negative 7,400 is believed to be the lowest score recorded on the show. Okay. However, Joan Cantor did finish a season one game at negative 5,100. That was before they doubled the dollar amount. So, you know, in today's Jeopardy games, that would be negative 10,200. Adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that. Uh, And Kathleen is at 10,200. The final Jeopardy category is Notable Names and the Clue. Following his death in 2018, his ashes were interred at Westminster Abbey between the remains of fellow scientists Darwin and Newton. Uh, They both got it correct. Kathleen wrote who is Stephen Hawking, and she wagered 7,000, so she got 200 above Matt's score. But he also got it correct with who is Hawking and wagered 4,000, which is a bit more than a cover bet. And he's the winner. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants John Waters, a contracts manager and political consultant from McCultio, Washington. Barb Fecto, a high school librarian from Beverly, Massachusetts. And Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose four-day cash winnings total $122,400. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, alphabetically next geography. You've got some nerve. Minneapolis News Clues, presented by the Minneapolis Care 11 News Team. Listen up. Hurricanes. And by and by, that's B-Y and B-I, those two pairs of letters in quotation marks. Um, So each correct response will begin with either B-Y or Uh B-I. We had a funny mix-up at the $1,000 level of the Minneapolis category. The clue was, returning to the city sidewalk in 2017 after two years of street construction, the statue of this TV character, again, reminded residents, you're going to make it after all. Uh, Matt rang in and said, who is Moore? Mary Tyler Moore. And that is incorrect. Mm-hmm. John rang in with, who's, what is Mary Hart? That's also incorrect. And Barb got it with, who's Mary Richards? Mm-hmm. The character name. Yes. Did I know the character name? I did not. I don't think I did. Um, I thought her. I thought she was Mary Tyler Moore in the show. Yeah, uh, that that was that was what I knew. Said was Mary Tyler Moore show. Alphabetically, next geography I thought was pretty tricky. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them it was they were small sets of things. Yeah. Um. So at the two hundred dollar level, Great Lakes, Huron, Michigan. There are only five, right. so so you can figure out from there that it's Ontario. Barb got that one. California counties, San Benito, San Bernardino. That's... I, I mean, that's a, a $400 clue in single jeopardy. Like, If anything, to me, that should have been like the $1,000 clue. Because the yeah. $1,000 clue was former Soviet republics, Turkmenistan, Ukraine. It's like 
think of a country that starts with a U. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the one you always think of. Yep. Like, uh, yeah. Um, San Diego is the next California county alphabetically. But like, you know, I don't, I would have been trying to think of like another saint. There's, um, there's no San C something. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know the counties of California at that level. I, you know, mostly, I, mostly I think the Jeopardy writers do a great job, but mm-hmm. like the $400 level, that come felt, on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Felt risky. Uh, Daily Devil number one is in the you've got some nerve category at the $800 level. Uh, Matt finds it. It's pick number 13. He is at 4,400. Barb's at 2,800. John's at 1,600. And he makes it a true Daily Double. And the clue is the shortest of the cranial nerves. It's responsible for your sense of smell. And he gets that correct with what is the olfactory nerve. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Matt is at 9,200. Barb is at 6,000 and John's at 2,400. So <clears throat> he didn't manage to, uh, you know, pull it all away yet. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, the Knights Templar, science fiction, at the beach, 80s ladies, actor sing, and world of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, world of jobs turned out to be, they will give you a language and a word from that language and you say what that occupation is that was an appropriately challenging category i would say mm-hmm. although yeah. if the contestants had listened to my deep dive on the boar war that was probably now almost two years ago at the 1600 dollars level they would know that boar means farmer that's right i thought of that deep dive there was a weird clue in the knights templar uh, category at the $1,600 level. A really a weird re- needed response. The clue is Knights of the Templar Order wore a distinct, distinctive style of dress, a white surcoat emblazoned with this symbol. And Matt said, what's a cross? Lavar said, more specific, please. And he's like, a uh, Christian cross. Which is not... Mm-hmm. I mean, not, that's not entirely true. Not. <laughs> um, it's, it's debatable, I think. Uh, but that was ruled incorrect. Barbering in mm-hmm. said what's a crucifix, which is totally wrong. They were looking for a red cross. Now, the Templar cross does not have the same, like, shape as what we think of as the red cross, red cross. Oh, so, so my response of a Jerusalem cross, which I shouted from the couch, actually, I think I think is, is more correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the Jerusalem cross, like, the four arms are kind of, like, are the same length um, they are sort of capped. Yeah. With like, they're, like they're more flared into, on the end almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, and typically a Jerusalem cross is surrounded with like four small crosses and, also. And really like I've only ever heard it called the Templar cross. Mm-hmm. So because of its particular design, I like when they asked to be more specific, I was like, I don't know what I, I would call it the Templar cross because that's yeah. Just calling it a red cross is like, okay. But actually there were also, uh, sometimes they wore black. Like it was a black mm. cross, not a red cross. So oh, that okay. one, I, I had a real problem with that being like, really? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Agreed. Daily double number two is at the $1,600 level of the science fiction category. It's the eighth pick and Matt finds it. Uh, he's at 8400 at this point. 
Barb is at 7,600. Josh is at 5,200. Um, so I guess I was incorrect when I said that like the Monday game was the only one that stayed competitive for any length of time. Um, sure. But anyway, he wagers 8,400. So good, solid, true daily double wager. Mm-hmm. I like it. And he gets the clue. Arthur C. Clarke's rendezvous with this isn't about a Hindu god, but rather a spooky craft that's entered our galaxy. Um, and he correctly uh, response what is rama yes yeah rendezvous with rama that's like a prequel to tuesdays with maury right <laughs> yeah yep uh sorry to totally things. derail you <laughs> yeah i i'm I, I i'm i'm enjoying the mashup there <laughs> that takes him up to sixteen thousand eight hundred, and whew, that is uh that's impressive that's a big jump um and uh, Daily Devil number three is only two picks later. Uh, it's back in that world of jobs category at the $1,200 level. Matt finds this one as well. Uh, he's the only one who's made money. So he's at 18000 Barb's at 7600 John's at 5200 He wagers only 2000 And he gets a clue in Swedish. Blomsterhandlar. And he gets pretty close with what's Gardener. Uh, but mm-hmm. they're looking for Florist. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, my my guess. I haven't like looked up the Swedish etymology, but like uh, it looks to me like like flower, like handler. handler. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I I'm impressed with his with his guesswork. Very mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So smart of him to um to keep the wagers small when he doesn't sort of need to make big wagers to get out in the lead. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt is at 24,400. It's not quite a lot game. Barb is at 12,400. So she could conceivably get up to $800, uh, $400 above where Matt is now. Yep. And John's at 7,200. We have the final Jeopardy category, mythological animals. And the clue, after being born, this creature would bring the remains of its forebear to Heliopolis and put them on the altar of the sun god. John responds, what is Cyclops? That's not correct. He's wagered 7150 dropping him to $50. Barb responds, what is a phoenix? She's wagered 12210 which brings her up to 24610 That's fine. I assume there's something sort of significant for her about 210 Yeah, maybe. Um, she, you know, she needs to get above where matt is now and then hope he misses um uh but he's got it correct with what is a phoenix he's wagered just a thousand which brings him up to twenty five thousand four hundred and makes him the winner that's right uh so that was his fifth game so he's he is now at this point officially five game winner he's cleaning house he's punched his ticket we'll see him again for sure Mm mm-hmm uh, and on Wednesday, we get the contestants Say Assigns, a barista and gardening assistant from Brooklyn, New York, Amanda Michelle, a middle school teacher from Dublin, California, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose five-day cash winnings total $147,800, which is more than I won in seven games. <coughs> it's really it's a lot. impressive. It's very yeah. good. So mm-hmm. uh, at the Jeopardy round, we have the categories Fiction, Turtle Power, Idioms Made Fancy, International Food and Drink, Sitcom Exits, and Do You Remember? That Idioms Made Fancy category, it's it's hard because idioms are not necessarily like 
exact. You know what I mean? Like the the verbiage can be can differ from mm-hmm. place to place. And so like trying to know exactly what they're looking for, I thought was was kind of hard. Yep. Agreed. At the thousand dollar level, um, the clue was Satan provides employment on behalf of the indolent. Um, Amanda rang in and then couldn't quite find the words and uh, ran out of time. And then Matt rang in and said, what's idle hands are a devil's plaything, which they deemed acceptable. Incidentally, Matt has continued with his strategy of consistently using what's Mm -hmm. as the interrogative, regardless of what's grammatically correct. Um, Yeah. The response that came to me was the devil finds work for idle hands. Oh, um, which. Wow. Which uh, comes up when I Google the phrase. I also see the devil makes work for idle hands. The way I've heard it is idle hands are the devil's workshop. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a, there are a number of ways that you can uh, phrase this idiom. And, like, if anyone has said it. Right. Then it, it's got to be acceptable. It's, a, it's an idiom and it's a valid response. Yep. Yep, indeed. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the Do You Remember category at the $800 level. It's the 10th pick and Matt finds it. Surprise. He has 6,400 at this point. Amanda's at 1,000. Say is at zero. Uh, he makes it a true Daily Double and gets the clue. It became a battle cry after it appeared in a cartoon caption in the Washington Post, April 3, 1898. And he correctly responds, what is Remember the Maine? We had a number of things in that Do You Remember category that have come up recently yeah i mean i I don't think your salvador dali deep dive was that recent but we had a a clue about persistence of memory there Mm -hmm. and then we talked about proust and um uh the The madeline as a thing to know in literature that was at the thousand dollar level yeah so at the end of the jeopardy round Matt is at 15,400. Amanda is at 2,600. Saya is at 2,400. And we have the double jeopardy categories. Burgess is in the house. The last word said in classic films. Geographic AKAs. Here's John. Children in the Bible. And jargon. My strategy tip for anybody who's thinking about being on Jeopardy is that the last word said in classic films category, there's a limited number of movies where you are supposed to know a single iconic closing line. Yeah. You can like start kind of running them in your head and probably one of the ones you think of is going to come up. Yeah. The only word that i thought of that didn't come up here was uh oh and it wouldn't have made sense as a <laughs> as a clue uh because the the title and the last word are the same is uh chinatown <laughs> <laughs> that's yep that would not have worked very well it wouldn't have worked <laughs> i didn't think of it until <laughs> Until later, though. I mean, I, I thought of, I was like, oh, like, forget a Jake is Chinatown, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's, that's one. I was like, there's no place like home. 
oh, which other one? Oh, uh, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship or like whatever that line uh-huh. is. Like, like I was able to, I was able to think of a couple ones that did end up coming up and then one that didn't for obvious uh, reasons. <laughs> obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They struggled a little bit with it. Matt fell into the, the classic trap with Gone with the Wind. He said, what is damn? Because a lot of people think that the last line is, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That's mm-hmm. Rhett Butler's last line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the movie continues for longer. It's just too long anyway. <laughs> it's uh, a very long movie. It should have been over way before that as it was. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the actual last line is tomorrow is another day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the Children in the Bible category. Uh, it's at the $1,600 level. Pick number six in the round, and Matt finds it. He's at 17000 at this point. Amanda is at 1000 and Say is at 400 So he has a bit of a lead. Mm-hmm. And he wagers 2000 The clue is later to lend his name to a free Bible donation society. This judge and hero had 70 sons. And he gets it correct with who is Gideon. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is, it is just four clues later. In the geographic AKAs category at the $1,200 level. And Matt finds this one as well. He's at 21800 at this point. Uh, Amanda's at 3000 Saya is still at 400 and he gets the clue Monte Servino is what the Italians call this mountain that they share with the Swiss. He tries what's Mont Blanc, but that's incorrect. They are looking for the Matterhorn. Yep. Uh, they just really love the Matterhorn. Yeah. I don't know why they, uh, so they, sh- they share it with the Swiss and Disney. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt, is in a lock position at 29,000. Amanda has made it back up into uh, the positives, so she's able to play at 600 and say is at 5,200. The final Jeopardy category is Shakespeare's plays, and the clue, let's all sync with the king, is a line from the opening scene of this play. Uh, Amanda gets correct with what is the tempest. Of course, the, the storm, the tempest itself is what's going on. Mm-hmm. She wagered five ninety nine, so she goes up to eleven ninety nine. Saya wrote "What is the Tempest?" and then she crossed it off and put "What is King Lear?" Uh, so she gets it incorrect. She wagered thirty nine ninety nine, so she stays above Amanda's all in. Uh, and Matt also got it correct with "What is the Tempest?" and he wagered a modest eighteen thousand, <laughs> not risking his lock, of course, uh, mm-hmm. and ends up with a payday of forty seven thousand dollars. Oh, so much money. It's not bad for a Wednesday. No. no it's not. <laughs> it was really actually, it may have actually been a Wednesday. Wednesday is one of the days that they tape, but yeah. All right. So on Thursday, we have the contestants, Brian Cracciolo, an assistant registrar from White Plains, New York. Not far from me, actually. Uh, Dana Rosner, a sales manager from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose six-day cash winnings total $194,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Name that Beatles tune. Help. Here, there, and everywhere. Something. Let it be. It is in quotation marks. And hello, goodbye. Which are are all Beatles tunes. I didn't actually know 
all of them mm-hmm. as Beatles tunes. Um, but I, you know, once I, once I identified that at least two or three of them were, I was able to get the other ones from context. Yeah. We had a triple stumper in the something category, which again is just like <laughs> trivia. Something podge. Right. <laughs> That'd have been funny. <laughs> Uh, at the thousand dollar level, I, I remember when this came up, and I felt like th- I feel like this is something that a lot of trivia people would know. It so it kind of surprised me. It was a triple stumper. Uh, mm-hmm. In 2020, a grandson of this tenth president passed away at 95. Yes, you heard that right. And no, they never met. Uh, Matt guessed what's Polk? Uh, that's not correct. I think Polk was 12. Mm. No, no, no. Polk was 11. 11. Um, 13. Yeah. Pierce was 13. Oh, Taylor then became. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, Brian guessed who is Andrew Jackson. Dana guessed who is Harrison. But it's John Tyler. John Tyler was the one who was old when he had kids. Mm-hmm. And all of his yep. kids apparently were old as well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in the Hello Goodbye category, yet again, apparently we don't need to specify which Bach at the $600 <laughs> level. I knew that was going to annoy you. <laughs> premiered in, in 1685, wrote Mass in B minor, which is an f- amazing composition, by the way. Fathered some 20 kids, began decomposing in Leipzig in 1750. Matt rang in, said, who is Bach? He mentioned the 20 kids. Some <laughs> of those Bachs were also composed. Well, I guess, I mean, the some rest of, them of the clue. Some began composing. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, the clue points to one specific Bach. Say which one. <laughs> Like, yep. there's more than one like, historically significant Bach. Like, if we have to specify Zelda Fitzgerald. Exactly. Exactly. When it's like, the category is women, right? Is like, clearly mm-hmm. pointing to the female of the pair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we have to specify there. You don't have to specify which Bach. Apparently, this is my soapbox forever now. Yeah. You know what? I just said a minute ago uh, that... There was a Friday game where LeVar Burton said no and then immediately changed it to yes. But I was wrong. It was the Thursday. Mm-hmm. It was the Thursday game. Uh, this was in the $1,000 level of that same category. Uh, the clue was, was Scott Free in 1835, steeled himself in America, sold off his shares for good in 1919. And Dana rang in and said, who is Carnegie? And LeVar Burton said no. Oh, yes, correct. Which, you know, it's one of those. Why did that not get cleaned up in post yeah. questions that I have. Who knows? Um, uh, Daily Devil number one is in the here, there, and everywhere category at the $800 level. Let's pick number 10. Matt finds it, and he is up to 5000 already. Dana's at zero. Brian's at negative 1000 He gets the clue. These two countries each border 14 other countries, including each other. And he seems to work it out. He gets it correct with what are Russia and China. Yeah, that was challenging. Yeah, um, I think if you... I know there are Sporkle quizzes about, like, countries that border countries. So I think if mm-hmm. you figured out that 14 is, like, the max number and they're the biggest ones. Yeah. Uh, then that, that points makes you to the right place. Mm-hmm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is up to 15,200. Dana is at 1,200 and Brian is at negative 400. The double Jeopardy categories are a Nobel laureate wrote that. Old military abbreviations. It's all in your head and hands. The state's richest person, according to the Forbes list, playing the part and take a few letters where they will give you a clue. You figure out what the clue is talking about. Then you take some letters out to get to the actual response that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. First of all, they should have had LeVar Burton say, like, connect the dots on the wordplay verbally. And then also they should have put the word they were trying to cue and 
the um and the correct response together mm-hmm. so you could sort of see yeah it. they they did that one sort of without you know without comment and it's a multi-step process where it's hard to know as a as a casual viewer like to follow those steps yeah this i think was probably taped before the Bo Burnham comedy special Inside was a thing. But at the $400 level of the state's richest person, um, the clue was Washington. Sorry, Bill Gates, it's this guy. And there's been a song about him all over my TikTok. That's Jeff Bezos. Um, also, also he, he launched himself into space. He did. <laughs> it would be, at this point, it would be, it would be hard to miss that one, but he's been very much in the public consciousness these last few weeks. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I don't know when they taped, but you know, it was before that. Certainly I guess. before that. Yeah. Yeah. Daily double number two comes up super early. Second pick in the a Nobel laureate wrote that category at the $1,600 level. And Matt finds this one. He's at 17,000 to Amanda's 1,000 and say is 400. And he wagers just 2,000 on this one and gets the clue. His novel, Rites of Passage, echoed the survivalist theme of an earlier work about boys marooned on a remote island. Now, someday I will remember which William... <laughs> wrote Lord of the Flies, and which one wrote The Princess Bride. One is Golding, and the other one is Goldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, today I did not, um, but Matt did. It's Golding. Yes. William Golding wrote Lord of the Flies. William Goldman wrote The Princess Bride. They're, they're not similar. <laughs> but the they names are. They are not, are. no. <laughs> the names are, and that's a problem for me. Sure. Daily Devil number three is in the It's All in Your Head and Hands category. Also at the $1,600 level, so it is found at pick number six, uh, because Matt likes to go through the $1,600 level. Uh, Mm -hmm. He finds it. At this point, he is up to $20,400. Dana's at $2,800, and Brian's at negative $400, and he wagers another $2,000. Appropriately, the skin on the edge of this facial feature is called the vermilion border. And he gets that correct with, what are the lips? Mm -hmm. And I do not know why. But since I was a kid, I have thought that vermilion means yellow. Now, I have learned multiple times that vermilion is a type of red. Yep. I have learned that, and I know that. But my brain will immediately think vermilion is yellow until I say, wait, no, that's not right. So I was like, what What part of the face has a yellow border? The Like the nostrils, if you have snot, or like the eye gunk? What? What is that? <laughs> Ew. And he said lips. I was like, how does that make... Oh, right, because vermilion's red. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I do not know why I have that in my head. It's yeah. like... Uh, also in that category at the $800 level, we had a throwback to our episode one deep dive. Um, mm-hmm. Blue was in palmistry, the mount of this Greek sun god seen here. There was a picture. Deals with hopefully sunny things like happiness and success. That is the Mount of Apollo. And we were just we were just a tiny baby podcast. Oh, we were so young then. Figuring out what we were doing. But if you want to learn about the history of palmistry and what you call the different things on your palm, uh, that was my that was my first deep dive. We'd had an episode zero, which you can't get anymore because we were a really tiny baby podcast then. Um, yeah, that but- was a how do we put this together and put it on the internet? Yep. But yeah, no, if you want to if you want to find out some more things about palmistry, just scroll way back in the archives. There you it's go. in there. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt is at $44,000. Unreal. 
uh, I just keep making like explodey sounds here. Yeah. Uh, Dana is at 4,400. Brian is at negative 1,200, so he does not get to participate in Final Jeopardy, where the category is World Cities. And the clue is this Colombian port of 1 million people gets its name from Phoenician for New Town. Dana came up with a city in Colombia, which that's the thing to do if you can't make the connection. Uh, she tried what is Bogota. Um, she's wagered zero, so it doesn't really matter she stays at 4400 also it was a lock game yeah because Matt had 10 times her score right yes yeah he could have wagered well i guess he wagered close to what he could safely wager yeah yeah that's it's just mind-blowing anyway so she she has really you know like it, it it doesn't matter it's just all for all for pride at this point um she's wagered zero she stays at 4400 and Matt has come up with the correct response. What is Cartagena from Carthage? That was what you needed to kind of make the connection to. He has wagered 30000 taking him up to $74,000. Uh, so he is our champion going into Friday. Good Lord, man. And on Friday, we have the contestants Andrew Kleinschmidt, a PhD student from La Jolla, California. Rachel McMullen, an assistant to the dean from Denton, Texas, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose seven-day cash winnings are $268,800. We have two PhD students, opposite, opposite ends of the country. Um, we have the Jeopardy! categories, Celebrations of the Month, Old Music, Old with an E, Books and Authors, Foul Balls, Foul, F-O-W-L, legal, and tender. Tender is in quotation marks. So it'll appear in every clue. I just don't know my sports teams. Hmm. But they did. <laughs> they did, uh, yeah. Uh, except the Atlanta Hawks didn't, didn't get that one at the $1,000 level. Yeah. The clue is long after Dominique Wilkins, this NBA team flew through a rough 2004-2005 season going 13-69. and 69. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the Atlanta Hawks. But that was one of the few that they didn't get. Uh, yeah. This game. There weren't many triple triple stumpers. Yeah, really solid game. If anyone is looking for a book recommendation, at the $600 level of books and authors uh, was one of my recent favorites. The Richardson family's house is a victim of arson in this bestseller by Celeste Ng, adapted as a Hulu miniseries. I haven't seen the miniseries, but the book is Little Fires Everywhere, and I really liked that one. Hmm. LeVar Burton seemed tickled by Matt answering a question about which month black history month was yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't yeah. know but he did he did giggle at it i shouldn't uh, not giggle he laughed yeah andrew might be in trouble with his mom because <laughs> at the 200 dollar level of celebrations of the month uh the clue was mother goose day as well as mother's day and andrew tried what is april uh mother's day's in may that's okay. If he's given her, her Mother's yeah. Day stuff early, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I don't know. I don't know anybody's family structure. Don't want to make assumptions, but I, <laughs> I just thought about um, uh, the mothers I know and how they might react to someone saying, "Is Mother's Day in April?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, how was LeVar Burton's pronunciation on? Did you, uh, is that, did he, do you know if he, his pronunciation of uh, the, the, the German, magic flute? Yeah. Did, Die yeah, Zauberflöte. I, I thought he yeah, did I thought, fine. I didn't notice. I thought uh, he leaned it toward flute. Yeah, which I mean, it's a no with an umlaut, so it's kind of like flute, flute. Yeah, I, I've I've tried to understand some German pronunciation stuff for choral singing purposes, but it's gone poorly for me. I There's a lot of movements inside the mouth that we're not used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Daily double number one is at the six hundred dollar level of legal. It's the nineteenth pick. And Andrew finds it. He has 1,800 at this point to Matt's 6,000 and Rachel's 2,200. And he makes it a true daily double as well he should. Mm -hmm. And gets the clue, let's get inventive and file one of these. The three types are utility, plant, and design. He tries what is a brief, but they're looking for patent here. Yeah. I think inventive was supposed to be your pointer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can file a brief, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know what types of brief there are, uh, but I'm pretty sure there are types other than utility, plant, and design. Mm-hmm. There's also boxer. <laughs> all right, now, now. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt's at 9,000. Rachel's at 2,600. Andrew is at 600. He put his name on the podium with an exclamation point, and the the um, Jeopardy archive <laughs> keeps those yep. uh, intact. <laughs> so yep, I keep does. wanting to say Andrew. <laughs> um, uh, we have the double Jeopardy categories: American history, the CDC says so, three consecutive vowels, what's in the envelope, poetry in motion pictures, and countries that start with S. I thought the Four hundred dollar level, four hundred dollar level of poetry in motion pictures was. Um, there's more neg bait than you would expect at a four hundred dollar level. Uh, the clue was: this actor reads the Song of Hiawatha in a laundromat in 2004's Spider-Man Two, um, and Tobey Maguire is the correct answer. Matt gets that one, mm-hmm. um, but you have to, I think, pick up on that they're looking for the 2004 Spider-Man actor as opposed to the more recent one who right. is well, Tom Holland. Well, Tom Holland that, is Spider-Man yeah. now, but the other more recent Spider-Man 2 is Andrew Garfield. Right, yes. Yeah, I just I just feel like somebody who didn't realize there'd been multiple recent Spider-Mans um, Spider- Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> uh might just be like who plays spider-man and like spit out whatever you know whatever Mm -hmm. name you know whatever name they have um yeah now i went the other way and was like was that alfred molina i think it's alfred molina Hmm. because he was in that he was doc ock and spider-man too Mm, but apparently they they weren't going that deep so yeah daily double number two is in the What's in the envelope category at the $1,600 level? Matt finds it. It's pick number eight in the round. And uh, he is up to 16200 Rachel is at 1000 and Andrew is at $3,400. Uh, he wagers just 2000 And he gets the clue. 
their seed packets from this Pennsylvania-based company, whose name is the same as an exercise move. Time to get planting. I, I liked his facial expression. He seemed confused for a moment, and then he put it together uh, with what is burpee. Yeah, uh, that was that was fun to watch. And uh, daily double number three is in the three consecutive vowels category at the $1,200 level. And Matt finds this one on the 20th pick. He's made it up to 29,000 at this point. Rachel's at 1,000 and Andrew is at 6,600. Matt wagers 4,000 and gets the clue. He's the Old Testament prophet most quoted in the New Testament. He guesses Ezekiel. Not a bad guess if you're just trying to, you know, sort of find one with three consecutive vowels and you're not fam- not not that familiar with the like, you know, kind of uh like with the with the contents of the New Testament at a like, you know, mm-hmm. at, a, at at like a, <laughs> a religious professional level or like weekly churchgoer level or whatever. Um Isaiah is what they're looking for. Although so here's here is my um question. Mm. This sort of presumes a Christian framework, which is understandable. And when Christians talk about the Bible, the prophets are uh, the ones that are sort of toward toward the back mm-hmm. of the Old Testament as we ha- in the order we have it, right? Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, and then the 12, uh, the, the 12 minor prophets, um, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. However, Judaism uses the term prophet a little bit differently. And for them, Moses is a prophet. We don't generally refer to Moses that way in Christianity, and Moses doesn't fit with three consecutive vowels. But I'm sort of curious, like, how would you, like, if you were to count quotes from, like, the law of Moses, right, Uh, which Mm -hmm. was as being from Moses and Moses as a prophet, would there be more Moses than Isaiah? I don't know the answer. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure at what level they fact checked this. Um, But seeing, like, prophet most quoted in the New Testament, I was like, well... I'm not sure, and it depends on how you define your terms. Yeah. And I bet that the trivia writer who wrote this is not immersed in this at the level that I am to to know that like how you define the terms might be a problem. Yeah. So that's that's my quibble. It it could be that it's still Isaiah. You know, it could be it could be that somebody thought of that and checked and it's Isaiah. And it's still Isaiah. Um, hmm. But but I don't actually know. Sure. Interesting. Anyway, um, so yeah, Matt drops down a bit, but he still has a pretty insurmountable lead. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Matt is in the lead with 27,400. Rachel is at 1,800 and Andrew is at 9,000. And we get the final Jeopardy category, comedy and sports. And the clue, these are the two of a reporter's five W's that are not on the baseball team in Abbott and Costello's Who's On First. Rachel wrote, what are where and why? And that is incorrect. And she wagered 1,700, so she drops to 100. Andrew wrote, what is who and what? That is 
also incorrect. He wagered 5,000, and Matt wrote what is where and why. Again, that's incorrect, and he wagered 5,000, so he drops to 22,400. The correct answer is where and when. Where mm-hmm. and when. I was not crazy about this question. I think to to really confidently, like, to get it right, you need to know this... This, this routine, pretty... Routine, like, in and out, you yeah. know? Um, and that seems a little bit deeper than we ask people to go, typically, for Final Jeopardy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, usually... Uh, for me, kind of the the um, the hallmark of a good Final Jeopardy question is that you see the answer and and go, oh, of course, you know, <laughs> like there's the trick of it, or I could have figured that out, or I've heard of that, or I never knew that about that person, but it makes sense now that I see it, um, you know. And this was like, do you know it verbatim or or no? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I uh, it is a deeper cut mm-hmm. um, than normal, so. So that's the week. Uh, Matt is now an eight-game winner with just a boatload of cash, $291,000. He'll be back next week. LeVar Burton will not. We will have David Faber, who is raising money for the Robin Hood Foundation. I assume that's, uh, that's money going to all of the people who lost their jobs during the GameStock episode at, at Robin Hood. <laughs> This is the point when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It helps us do this podcast without losing money, which is great. <laughs> so you can check it out. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. Uh, we've got some content on there. And if you want to slide us a few bucks, that is where you can do it. Even if you don't want to do that or can't do that, you can still help us out by giving a rating or a review uh, on whatever podcatcher you happen to use. That helps us out a bunch. And if you only have the bandwidth to help out in a really more meaningful way, uh, we remind you to check out blacklivesmatter.com or communityjusticeexchange.org or the Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe database. Uh, All good places to get started if you want to help out our society. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, hey, the pandemic... (laughs) Still here. ...is worse again! Yeah. My region just crossed over from moderate community spread to substantial community spread. Um, And if you live in an area with substantial or high community spread, you are supposed to wear a mask inside even if you are vaccinated because the Delta variant is more transmissible even by vaccinated people who may not be as severely impacted or even symptomatic at all. We can still catch it and spread it. So mm-hmm. I'm wearing my mask inside. There's a CDC website where you can check what the community spread level is for your area. Do the right thing, y'all. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, all right. So, Emily. Kyle. Do you have deep dive guesses? Um, are we talking about the nice Templar? That was... Neck and neck with the one that I chose, but I just ended up not going with it. All right. What about Ivan the Great? You got it. We are talking about Ivan. Uh, This was in the history category on the Monday show, $800 level. Not Peter or Catherine, but a great ruler of this name. Won independence for Moscow from the Golden Horde in 1480. That is uh, Ivan. Ivan the Great. 
So we're going to talk about, I know I, I have done a number of these, but apparently it's my brand. We're going to go through the Russian czars. Great. And put them in order. Mention a few things about some of the more notable names. Try and give you a little context for them. And I'm specifically saying the czars because uh, Russian royal history goes way back. And boy, howdy, do I not want to talk about that much stuff. (laughs) Um, So here we go. The czars began... Like as a as a like a term and a like ruling kind of thing in 1547 uh, with Ivan the Terrible. Uh, now the Jeopardy clue refers to a previous Ivan. That's Ivan the Third, Ivan the Great. So the czars start with Ivan. He was the first czar of all of all Russia. Um, but Russian royalty goes back way way farther, and kind of the earliest like figure who who is considered like a, a russian like king or prince or like you know major leader it goes all the way back to 862 uh with the kind of semi legendary figure of rurik so rurik was the first prince of novgorod and this goes back to the idea of the rusia these were like uh, a group of east slavic people thought to have come kind of from Scandinavia, from Sweden and that that part, uh, and settling in what is now kind of like what we think of as European Russia or like Western Russia. And that group of people especially are referred to like a, as a, a branch of the Nordic Varangians. And they set up a series of states starting with the Russia Kaganate in 1830. And there's not much known about that other than that it existed. Um, So we don't really know the extent of its territory or the list of its rulers or anything like that. But we know that from that, or at least we believe from that, came Rurik, who is the founder of the Rurik dynasty. Uh, So all of his descendants and all of the rulers coming after him are referred to as Rurikids. Mm. I say like semi-legendary because there's not a lot known about him. We're pretty sure he was real, but the, the reality of his life and all that, we're not really sure. Um, so I wanted to mention him because he's kind of the start of it. So he's a prince of Novgorod, and he was the the one who kind of established the city of Novgorod as his like seat of power. And Novgorod was, for a time, kind of the capital of Russia. Then we have the Grand Princes of Kiev. Rurik's successor, Oleg the Seer, moved his capital to Kiev, and that founded the state of the Kievan Russia, which you might have heard of before. Um, and so the title of Grand Prince of Kiev and Grand Prince of Novgorod kind of merged there. And so those two terms typically referred to the person in charge of who we think of as Russians in that time period. Over time into, you know, the the the, the second millennia, uh, we get the introduction of the feudal state. Uh, so after the death of Yaroslav the Wise, the like the rights of of peasants are severely reduced and so we end up getting serfdoms the strength of the grand prince is weakened and so you know feudal lords gain more power for a long time for another you know couple of hundred years uh eventually we get to the grand princes of vladimir so the by the 12th century the grand duchy of vladimir became the dominant principality in northwest rus Um, adding its name to those of Novgorod and Kiev. 
so that started with Saint Andre the First. Uh, that was when he sacked the city of Kiev and took over the title, uh, and so that kind of like started the whole thing. And so that kind of that that period ended with the rule of Alexander Nevsky, or Saint Alexander Nevsky, who you might mm. have heard of. But I'm not going to talk about Alexander Nevsky. He was the last prince to directly reign from Vladimir. After his death, Northeastern Rus fell into a bunch of different principalities. And the Grand Duchy of Vladimir proper was received by the Golden Horde as one of the Apanaj princes. So the Golden Horde was actually in charge of most of this region (laughs) um, because the Mongols were just way too good at waging war. And so a lot of these rulers of Vladimir, of Novgorod, they still paid homage to the the Mongols and the Golden Horde uh, throughout this time. Uh, But we learned about that uh, with Ivan III, uh, who was a Grand Prince of Moscow. So after this period, the capital moves to the Grand Duchy of Moscow, uh, which is founded by Alexander Nevsky's son. And during the reign of the Grand Princess of Moscow, Ivan III, the Great, is the one who kind of liberates the Russians from the Golden Horde. Ivan the Third, Ivan the Great, who we talked about, uh, ruled until 1505, and his son Vasily followed him, ruled until 1533, and then his son, Vasily's son, Ivan IV, is who we know as Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan Vasilievich. He was the first Tsar of all Russia. Uh, so Ivan is often called Ivan the Terrible, but not because he was actually, like, terrible in the way we think of that word, more in the sense of, like, terror-inspiring or awe-inspiring or the formidable, like, that kind mm. of, like thing the, the russian term is ivan groshny um and that has more of a like grand word to it rather than he's just like a terrible person you know he's the son like i said of vasily III, the ruler of the grand duchy of moscow he was appointed grand prince when he was three years old after his father's death a group of reformers known as the chosen council united around the young ivan and uh declared him Tsar, which comes from caesar of all rus in 1547 at the age of 16 which established the Tsardom of Russia with Moscow as its predominant state. Mm. He actually transformed Russia from a medieval state into an empire but it did not go smoothly like his reign was not great. The idea of like terrible was you know not necessarily wrong but uh, especially his early reign saw a lot of reforms. Uh, during his youth, there's a conquest of the Khanate of Kazan and of Astrakhan, um, and that kind of expanded the power of Russia. Uh, he had consolidated his power uh, after after a time and triggered the Livonian War, which actually uh, ended up costing Russia quite a bit in terms of life and money uh, and his, his power. In the 1560s, he instituted what's called the Oprichnina, so what was going on, Russia had been devastated by a combination of drought, famine, and the unsuccessful war against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, as well as a sea-trading blockade by the Swedes, the Poles, and the Hanseatic League. And in addition mm. to that, uh, his wife, Anastasia Romanova, died in 1560, which he suspected to be a poisoning. So that personal tragedy hurt him a lot, and he did not deal with it well, and... Uh, following that, one of his close advisors, Prince Andrei Kurbsky, defected to the Lithuanians, took command of Lithuanian troops, and kind of conquered the Russian region of Velikiri Luki. Um, so, with these 
combination of events, Ivan became very paranoid and suspicious of the nobility. So a number of like events transpired where he abdicated the throne, but then the uh, like the council that was left behind couldn't maintain control, so they brought him back, and he agreed only if he could essentially have absolute power. So with that, he demanded to be able to execute and confiscate the estates of traitors without interference from the boyars, who were the nobles, or the church, and uh, he decreed the creation of the, like I said, the Oprichnina, which was a state policy from 1565 to 1572, including the mass repression of the boyars, uh, including public execution and confiscation of their lands and property. Mm. So he made enemies with the nobles during that time. Uh, and then in 1570, there was an epidemic, a plague that killed nearly 10,000 people in Novgorod and 600 to 1,000 daily in Moscow. Uh, and this combined with famine and the ongoing Livonian War, Ivan grew suspicious that the no- noble, the, the nobility of Novgorod were planning to defect and place the city like into the control of Lithuania. Whether that was actually true or not, there's no evidence, so who knows? But he took that as an opportunity to uh, bring in the Oprishniki and burn and pillage Novgorod and the surrounding villages. Since then, Novgorod hasn't, like even to today, that city is not the same in terms of prominence as it would be. Um, hmm. So against his own like people. There's a lot more to Ivan the Terrible, but those are kind of the big ones. The Oprichnina is especially his major policy that, that kind of like, you know, set him up there. After Ivan IV, he's the first Tsar. His son Feodor I, who is known as Feodor the Blessed, uh, followed him. After the death of Feodor, that was the end of the Rurik dynasty. Uh, Feodor had no sons, and uh, Russia fell into a succession crisis. So the feudal parliament that was left behind elected his brother-in-law Boris Gudnov to be czar. You've probably heard that name before. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Gudnov is not a Rurikid, so this is the first of the non-Rurikid czars. He was an ambitious man. He was regent for a while before that. It is believed that he, through various machinations, uh, had Dmitry Ivanovich murdered, who uh, Dmitry was a son of Ivan from Ivan's seventh and last marriage, and so would have a might have a claim to the throne. It was spurious because the Orthodox Church only recognized Ivan's first three marriages as legitimate, so none of the other children would have been considered that by the Church, but he still probably had the kid offed. Gudnov did some good things for Russia. He encouraged English mer- merchants to trade with Russia. He had a generally passive or pacific policy he did not engage in a lot of wars he also recovered some like through diplomacy some towns from sweden that had been lost during the former reign and the russian orthodox church received its patriarchate which uh allowed it to get out of the get out from under the control of the eastern orthodox church of of constantinople after his death he left his son, Theodore II, who succeeded him and ruled only a few months until he and Boris's widowed were murdered by enemies of the Gudinovs, uh, and this led to the Time of Troubles. Time of Troubles, continued famine, a series of impostors known as the False Dimitris each claimed to be Theodore I's long-deceased younger brother, right? Remember I mentioned, mm-hmm. I mentioned Dmitri Ivanov? Three different people 
or, or a number of different people claimed to be Dmitry. Foreign powers deeply involved themselves in Russian politics during this time under the leadership of the Vasa monarchs of Sweden and Poland. And so Russia had a really tough time of it. I'm just going to leave it at that. There's a lot of stuff in the time of troubles, but that's false Dmitry I, Vasilya IV, and Vladislav IV. After that, we get the establishment of the Romanovs. So the time of troubles came to a close with the election of Mikhail Romanov as Tsar in 1613. He... Technically ruled, his father, Patriarch Filaret, uh, really made most of the decisions, but Mikhail established the Romanov line, who ruled until the Russian Revolution of 1917. So that's Mikhail Romanov. Uh, he ruled from 1613 to 1645. He was succeeded by Alexis Mikhailovich, who is known as the Quietist, who ruled from 1645 to 1667. Uh, then Theodore III, who ruled from 1676 to 1682, followed by Peter I, who is known as Peter the Great. Peter the Great ruled from 1682 until 1725, and from 1682 to 1696, he ruled jointly with his half-brother Ivan V. Peter the Great is known for a lot of things. He had a very long reign, but the main thing that he's known for is modernizing and westernizing Russia. So when he came to power, uh, he viewed the threat of the Ottoman Empire and kind of the control that the Ottomans had over the, the Mediterranean and, and their, basically Russia's access to sea trade uh, as a pretty bad thing. Um, so he decided that he needed to go to other leaders of uh, Europe and see if he could gather allies to fight the Ottomans. Before this, he did manage to capture the port of Azov, and that was where he officially founded the first Russian Navy base at Taganrog. Uh, and so Peter the Great is also responsible for basically the creation of the Russian Navy. So he put together this this entourage that he called the Grand Embassy, and he went around to Austria, he went to Euro uh, France, and, you know, Germany. He went to a bunch of different leaders in Europe, and basically everyone was like, no, we don't want to do that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them were m much more worried about the War of Spanish Succession, uh, going on during that time to see who would succeed uh, Charles II in Spain. But during this trip, he saw what the Western civilization was like. He he like gained an appreciation for European art and culture and all that. And so when he returned to Moscow, you know, one of his big things was reforming it into a more like modern European empire. Uh, and that's what he did. One of the trivia thing, one of the notable things about him is uh, he forbade any of the nobles from having beards anymore because mm. Europeans didn't have beards. He was also involved in the Great Northern War, uh, which was with Sweden. And so he was able to uh, eventually gain some gain some land against Sweden, although they faced a lot of a lot of losses at the beginning. Yeah, I think I think I'm going to leave Peter at that. Modernized Russia, established the Navy. Also, a little trivia about him. He was six foot eight. He was a wow. tall man, extremely recognizable. Peter was the first to like officially name himself emperor, right? The term czar was before, and they they still called themselves czars after that. But kind of reorganizing more along the lines of the idea of a European empire, the leaders of Russia also took on the term emperor. The empire of Russia was officially declared by Peter in 1721. It's the same family line. the The difference is kind of small, but it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, so after P Peter I, we have Catherine I from 1725 to 1727. 
Then we have Peter II from 1727 to 1730. We have Tsarina Anna from 1730 to 1740. Ivan VI from 1740 to 1741. Uh, Elizabeth Petrovna, who is like historically one of the most popular like rulers of Russia, particularly because of her decision to not execute a single person during her reign, as well as her numerous construction projects and her opposition to Prussian policies. She continued Peter's reforms as well. So she was pretty important. Then we have Peter III from like January to July of, of 1762, followed by Catherine the Great, Catherine II. She was the Empress of all Russia from 1762 to 1796, the country's longest ruling female leader. She came to power following a coup d'etat that overthrew her husband slash second cousin, Peter III. Under her reign, Russia grew larger, its culture was revitalized, and it was recognized as one of the great powers of Europe. She relied on her noble favorites, most notably Count Grigory Orlov and Grigory Potemkin, who are names you might just have recognized they were in the court of Catherine the Great. She reformed the administration of Russia of Russian governments into and many new cities and towns were founded. And so she she continued to modernize. She looked up to Peter the Great as kind of like a an inspiration. Uh, she enthusiastically supported the ideals of the Enlightenment and is often included in the ranks of enlightened despots. After Catherine the Great, we have Paul I from 1796 to 1801, then Alexander I, who is known as Alexander the Blessed, from 1801 to 1825. Following that, we have uh, Emperor Constantine, who ruled 25 days, Hmm. from uh, 1st of December 1825 to the 26th of December 1825, because he had actually abdicated his, his position in 1823. They named him Emperor, and then he abdicated again. He was like, I don't want this. Leave me out of this. Uh, then we have Nicholas I from 1825 to 1855, Alexander II, who is known as Alexander the Liberator, from 1855 to 1881. During his reign, Alexander II is known as the Liberator because he was responsible for the uh, emancipation of the serfs. He believed in like autocratic rule for sure, uh, but he also abolished serfdom in 1861 on private estates throughout the Russian Empire. After him was Alexander III, 1881 to 1894, uh, who was known as Alexander the Peacemaker. During his reign, Russia fought no major wars, which is why he is known as the Peacemaker. He was also an autocratic ruler. He opposed any reform that limited his autocratic rule. Uh, That's important because Alexander III is followed by Nicholas II, Saint Nicholas II, sainted by the Orthodox Church. And I think the year 2000. Uh, Nicholas II was the last Tsar of Russia, last Emperor of Russia, last of the Romanov line, ruled until the Russian Revolution of 1917. During his rule, not only uh, was there the Russo-Japanese War as well as World War I, but he advocated modernization. With this progress, he, he did sign the Constitution of the Russian Empire in 1906, which established the Duma, which was... Uh, an imperial parliament. He didn't really like giving the Duma powers, but that was the way it was. He abdicated on March 15th, 1917, uh, during the Russian Revolution, and uh, he and his family were, uh, of course, captured by the Bolsheviks during the Revolution, and on July 17th, 1918, they were executed in Yekaterinburg. Mm -hmm. And that marks the very end of the Russian monarchy. 
There were uh, a few pretenders after Nicholas II, Mikhail Alexandrovich, fifth child of Emperor Alexander III, who claimed the throne after the abdication of Nicholas for literally one day. Like, actually less, like 18 hours. And so he technically ended the reign, like the monarchical reign, I guess, but really it was Nicholas. Then there was Nikolai Nikolaevich. Uh, he was a Russian general in World War One. He was proclaimed emperor of Russia by the Zemsky Sobor in 1922, but uh, that also ended because, like, the Soviet Union was like, no, we, we don't want to do that. <laughs> and then there was Kirill Vladimirovich, or Cyril I, in 1924 to 1938 he claimed the title of emperor of all russias while in exile and there were some who recognized him during that time but he had no power so so there we go there's the list wow. of russian monarchs the all the czars yeah that is that was helpful for context i heard a lot of names that i that i had heard mm-hmm before but i i sort of get lost in them so this was this was super helpful thank yeah. you yeah yeah I totally know that feeling. That's why I like to do these lists, because I'm, I'm like, I know some of these names, but I don't know where they fit, and I don't know a lot of, like, mm-hmm. the context, so. Yeah. All right. You ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. I hope I don't have to know a lot of Russian history. Uh, I assure you, this time I'm I'm actually telling the truth. <laughs> you don't actually need to know any Russian history to my, if I look through it. No. No Russian history. Okay. Uh, so this is... A quiz inspired by uh, the names of Russian monarchs. Oh, okay. So here we go. Question one. Ivan Ivan Pudge Rodriguez is arguably one of the greatest catchers in the history of baseball. He was American League MVP in 1999, has a career batting average of .296, and was a 14-time All-Star. Probably less known, he was also a shadow member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 2017 to 2018. As a shadow member, where was he from? Where is he from, like... You don't, I don't like need his, a city, just like... But, like, his baseball team, or, like, where no, he... No, where is he from? Like, where? what did he represent in the house? Oh, I, I'm gonna... A shadow member. All right, this, this feels like a long shot, but I'm gonna guess Puerto Rico. That's not a long shot. He's from Puerto Rico. Yay! Uh, Puerto Rico and other, like, non-states and non... I guess, voting territories, uh, they have shadow members that can go and, like, represent them. They can't vote on anything, but they can mm-hmm. still be there. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. this, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. This baseball player who's like, super good baseball player was also uh, a U.S. representative. That is from Puerto Rico. fascinating. All yeah. right. So there you go. You're at 20 points because you guessed the deep dive, so you already had 10. Yay. All right. Question two. Boris Badenov and Natasha Fatal are spies for the nation of Potsylvania and antagonists to what title pair? Oh. oh Sorry, you... go ahead. Finish, it, finish okay, your question. All right. <laughs> I'm not sure what sensitive information there is to be found in Frostbite Falls, Minnesota, but maybe Mr. Know-It-All actually does know it all. It's Rocky and Bullwinkle. That's Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. All right. You're at 30 points. Question Yay. three. KNO3, or potassium nitrate, is a compound that is often found in fertilizers, black gunpowder, and rocket propellants. It is also sometimes used to treat asthma. Uh, it, as well as a handful of other nitrogen-containing compounds, are often referred to by what name? Hmm. I don't know. Um, 
It's KNO3. It's potassium nitrate. I can't remember the uses he said. It's black gunpowder and something. I don't see a connection to the name of a Russian monarch. All right. Um, I don't feel like I have a great guess, but the, the word saltpeter is coming to mind, so I'll try that. Well, that's a good good what? guess because it's saltpeter. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, nice. Well done. I was like, I was like, definitely nothing with Alexander. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just trying to come up with like names of uh, names that you just said and like any terms that might relate to them. Huh. That's that's I have ne- I had never known what saltpeter meant, although I'd come across the word a few times. Yeah, typically potassium nitrate, but could be you know various other nitrates or things like that. Um, my my research currently uh, it, it w- found that the name really just comes from like salt of rock, right? Mm, like, oh, okay. But I remember learning it in high school, and I'm pretty sure the teacher told us that it was used to like I don't know if this is ap- apocryphal or if this is actual. Um, that it was like put into like the food and the water on ships uh, to keep sailors' libido suppressed, hmm. which is where the p- Peter comes from. So I don't know if that's true, hmm. but trivia people would probably be interested that that's a story. So there yeah. you go. Okay, you're at 40 points. Question four 1968 had some fantastic movies such as 2001 A Space Odyssey, Planet of the Apes, Rosemary's Baby, and others. It also had two other Oscar-winning movies. These movies are notable because they both featured a leading lady win the Academy Award for Best Actress. For three points each, name the films and the actresses. Hmm. I may end up taking a zero on it. Um, I'm trying to find the... uh connection to the name of the of the czar um because i can't like because i don't because i don't know the uh i don't i don't know the the bit of film trivia or the or the movies by year well enough yeah i think i'm gonna take a zero on it i don't have any good guesses okay so one of them this one is not really related to the the topic but that's barbara streisand and funny girl Mm mm-hmm and the other one was Catherine Hepburn ah. in The Lion in Winter. Yes. Okay. So Catherine I, Hepburn, I should have Catherine. at least guessed. Yes. Yeah, They're, I did. I Catherine Catherine occurred to me, and uh, and then I couldn't think of a film to go with it, but I should have just said her name and gotten the three. Oh well. But yeah, that's a that's a bit of, of film history that I think is probably going to come up some point in trivia. Mm-hmm. Right. Nineteen sixty eight mm-hmm. had two Best Actress winners. Hmm. So there you go. Yeah, I I uh, I must have seen that at some point, but I hadn't internalized it. Yes. Yeah. So Barbara Streisand played uh, Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl, mm-hmm. and Catherine Hepburn played Eleanor of Aquitaine in The Lion in Winter. Mm-hmm. So there we go. All right, question five. Okay, this is where I get really nerdy. Okay, the DSS uh, Alexander was a battle cruiser and the flagship of the. United Earth Directorate Expeditionary Force during their invasion of the Caprulu Sector. Now, Emily, I know you know this, but I'll inform our listeners that I'm talking about the real-time strategy game StarCraft, and specifically Brood War. Yeah, I definitely knew that. Yeah, the company... <laughs> LOL, I did not know that, listeners. 
<laughs> the company that makes StarCraft and its now parent corporation have recently come under fire, including an investigation by the state of California for harassment, discrimination, and abuse of employees, particularly women. What is that company who also makes World of Warcraft, Destiny, and Call of Duty? Oh, crap. I have no idea. They've been in the news lately. I know. I know they have. Uh, World of Warcraft. I know I'm going to groan when you say it. It's like one of those names that just sort of goes past me. Mm, yeah, I don't know it. Okay. Uh, it's Activision Blizzard. So Activision oh. is the parent company that owns blizzard so blizzard made starcraft and warcraft and all that yeah activision made destiny and call of duty and they bought blizzard a, i don't know probably 10 years ago at this point uh mm -hmm. so aside from like them being run by like totally terrible people who are absolutely fine with this kind of behavior uh they also you know a couple of years ago was it a couple of years ago or was it just last year god time means meaningless uh when hong kong was having its kind of more recent pro-democracy demonstrations mm -hmm. they came out like on the side of the like oh, powers yeah. that be and it was like are you kidding me are you kidding me activision why what, what are why? you attempting like what do you th uh and yeah. like you can just sit this one out right so you yeah, know like <laughs> just don't say a damn thing i just yeah like, nobody's like but activision hasn't waited yet right it they, um, that company needs to just like clear out its entire entire upper level mm -hmm. anyway all there right. you go all right all so you're right. you're at 40 points that's not that's not bad um tanking in the second half of the quiz but okay <laughs> uh we're going to the final and the category is movies and books <laughs> movies and books you know what i'll wager all 40 yeah nice all right here is your question nicholas easter dave lancaster Perry Hirsch and Jeff Kerr are all names used by the main character of what courtroom thriller? The 1996 novel focused on a lawsuit against the tobacco company Pinex and the 2003 film adaptation updated the defendant to Vicksburg Firearms. Hmm. 1996 book 2003 film. I was, for a second, I was trying to come up with the name of that George Clooney one, but that was later. Um, I can tell you that it was played by John Cusack in the film. But John Cusack? Trat, what the heck was John Cusack in? I mean, I know I know a bunch of things John Cusack was in, but they're all rom-coms. Um, uh, all right. I don't think I have it. I think I'm losing all my points today. I'm going to guess uh, Devil's Advocate, which is coming to mind as like approximately right time period, and I haven't seen it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's The Runaway Jury. Oh, okay. I also have not seen that one. Oh, I'm sorry. We had uh, to read it in okay. high school. It's when we like oh. talk about like in civics class to like learn about, you know, jury selection and all that. Yeah. No, this this looks like an entirely valid movie that I should know. It has John Cusack and Gene Hackman. It does have Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman, yeah. Yeah, it's, no, got, it's got some names. Oh. Oh yeah, the poster looks familiar too. Yeah, no, I just 
I just didn't have this one in my brain, but I should have. Sorry, sorry about zeroing you out there. That's okay. Uh, I, you know, it will. It wouldn't be an exciting quiz if we didn't bomb it. Sometimes you're right. Um. Well, thank you for a, a great deep dive and a fun quiz. Although I did crash and burn at the end there. No, no problem. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and thanks, listeners. Um, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you'd be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. That's right. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.